watchers in the fourth dimension. You know, travel does broaden the mind. Yes. You will never amount to anything in the galaxy while you retain your propensity for vulgar facetiousness. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And this episode, it's our season 14 retrospective. But before we start that, I'm going to take a quick look back at the mail, specifically that that relates to our episode where we discussed the face of evil. And Nick Rutherford kicks us off saying, Excellent episode from the Watchers and interesting comments from fellow listeners. I think the first half of this story is excellent. One of the best. Leela gets a brilliant debut and the episode one cliffhanger is one of the all-time greats. But I don't think the second half is so good, and for that reason, I'd put it in my bottom half of the season. But to be frank, that still makes it a lot better than much we've seen before and yet to come. Yeah, fair. All right, R.L. Gray says, Thanks for another fun and interesting episode, watchers. With regards to the discarded idea of Leela having psychic powers inherited from a witch priestess grandmother, well, (laughs) keep that in mind in a few episodes' time, when we meet the next contestant in the lovable Batty Old Ladies competition. (laughs) I love Batty Old Ladies. Also, and referencing an ongoing subject of the podcast, although we see at least a couple women of the Sever team, none seem to be in evidence among the Tesh, leading my partner Candice to wonder how they have reproduced through the generations. However, being a society of scientists and engineers, it's possible they do so through biotechnological means. Yeah, that could work. Maybe they're just a bunch of misogynists and they keep their women below decks. I believe that. (laughs) They keep them hidden in a room somewhere? Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Tracks. Well, one of our friends from Hulanta, Adam Wright, wrote to us and said, Excited to have reached the era of Leela. The Face of Evil is an episode that does not disappoint. Well-paced with some good characters. Neva stands out for so many reasons. (laughs) I love how Leela is no damsel in distress. Memorable moment remains the mentally ill computer Zoanon crying, Who am I? Nine out of ten baby-eating evil ones. <laughs> Yay! Speaking of friends from Hulanta, convention director and our unofficial fifth watcher Alan Siler comments, I love this story so much. It's one of the most intelligently written stories from this era, and Leela gets the best companion introduction ever seen in the entire series. Yeah, hmm. I said it. Hmm. Wow. Okay. The exploration of a divided culture and the evolution of both sides' religious beliefs is brilliant. I also think Neva is one of the greatest characters from this season. The world building in this story is exceptional, and we see in the following story, The Robots of Death, that this level of world building is not a fluke. Chris Boucher is an incredible writer who also did strong work on Blake 7. The fact that he wrote two so very different classics back to back is impressive. It's a shame that he only ever wrote three Doctor Who stories, but I love them all. The Face of Evil doesn't have Daleks in it, or Cybermen, or The Master, or loads of Time Lord lore, so I think it sometimes gets forgotten or overlooked, but it is quite simply one of the greatest Doctor Who stories ever made. I rate this one nine and a half. Hungry, hungry hoarders out of 10. But Alan, nine and a half, why not 10? What are your 10s, Alan? We will hopefully hear about that. Indeed. Carrying on with feedback on the face of evil, Kieran James Evans chimes in saying, I recently re-watched this and the fourth story of next season 
as I couldn't really remember them and found them both very enjoyable and have soared in my opinion for the era. Leela is a great companion and it's interesting to rewatch her first story. Strong, independent and not dumb. Uneducated, but not stupid. Oh, yes. Interesting that you bring up her name origin. In the commentary, Hinchcliffe refers to Layla Khaled as a terrorist, but Chris Boucher interjects with a freedom fighter. There's an awkwardness and then they carry on the commentary. While Holmes undoubtedly rewrote things, Boucher's script is full of great lines. Particularly, you know, the very powerful and the very stupid have one thing in common. They don't alter their views to fit the facts. They alter their facts to fit the views. Which can be uncomfortable if you happen to be one of the facts that needs altering. <laughs> gold. Pure gold. It's a shame we only got the stories we did from Boucher. Hinchcliffe has said that he would have picked him to be a replacement script editor, and I so wish we got him from season 19 onwards after Blake 7 had finished. Eight and a half Janus Thorns, not Janus Thorn. <laughs> Going to everyone's favourite platform over on X, Harry Hussey messaged us to say... Given that, from what I can see, fandom neither hates nor raves about this one, I was pleased to hear the overwhelmingly positive reaction that it got from you all. I did a Tom Baker marathon a few years back during the pandemic, and I really loved this story. I'd always liked it, but it landed so well for me then, I gave it 10 out of 10. Mm. 10 out of 10 what, Harry? Yeah. <laughs> I love when we like to go against fandom and other people realize that we weren't wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Harry continues, saying, Doctor Who isn't always true science fiction, more often just having sci-fi trappings, and nor would I always want it to be. But this is a story really heavily influenced by literary science fiction, and it is a neglected masterpiece. Most of the actors are on point. The guy playing Andor is a bit hammy, but even his performance works for the part, with huge kudos to the always reliable Louise Jameson on her debut. The plot has such an amount of fascinating ideas, slowly revealed to the audience in a believable way. And then there are some impressive set pieces, such as the reveal of the Doctor's face in the cliff and the whole who am I bit. Hard to disagree with you, Harry. Austin D. Patterson wrote in with the following. My favourite sci-fi trope is the mythical basis for a religion actually having an alien or time travel related explanation behind it. And Face of Evil does this the best. <laughs> Everything down to their prayer being the checks on a spacesuit is perfect. Also, you don't know how long I've waited for you guys to talk about Leela, especially Julie. She is the first of seven badass women in classic who I can't wait for you guys to meet. Perfect. First of, did he say seven? He did say seven. I'm very curious as to who the other six are. I have some ideas, but I'm sure we'll find out. Barbara's got to be included, right? I mean, her and her maniacal driving, running over <laughs> Daleks and such. He said first of seven, so I'm assuming he's going chronological from Leela. Okay, then. Not Babs? Oh, very sad. Maybe he's only thinking about ones we haven't met yet. Ah, uh, okay. We wouldn't want to assume that Austin disrespects Barbara that much. Next up, we have our good friend Naomi, aka the Whovian gal, who says, Yay, Leela. I'm with Julie all the way on this one. She is amazing and perfect. I feel like Louise Jameson has to be given a lot of credit here. So many ideas around Leela's character were pretty terrible, and she lifts the character from what could have been disastrous into something brilliant. And her introduction story really is an underrated gem. I'm so glad all of you enjoyed it. 
And last but not least, talking about the face of evil itself, we have our friend with our favourite name, which is of course Beardo Beatnik, who said, After stumbling with the dull previous story, the Doctor snaps back to brilliance with this cracker of an adventure. Love this classic, 9 out of 10 Janus Thorns. Leela is awesome. <laughs> now, if you remember, our episode on the face of evil was the one where we read Zacharias Sir's impassioned defense of space 1999. Oh, right. Mm, yes, yes, yes. And that seems to have generated a little feedback. Not only did Alan Seiler and I message back and forth, and it turns out Alan is now doing a rewatch of Space 1999, our friend J.M. Casey also came forward with the following. I'm just in the process of my second watch through of Space 1999 now, and I have to say I'm into it as well. Even the show's faults, now that almost 50 years have passed, are just an interesting study in what can go wrong behind the scenes during a complicated TV production, and thus are for me more instructive than they are simply flaws. The show has such a profound atmosphere, especially during year one, and the feeling is one of melancholy and existential loneliness, but also a kind of warmth, as you see the Alphans working together and living as best they can in a terrible situation. I'm also a big fan of John Koenig's character, and to me he is much more than just a Kirk substitute. The music is great, the guest cast often wonderful, and Landau and Bane make just such a great natural team. The show definitely has some pretty slow episodes where I think a bit more plotting could have kept the interest level up, but really that's pretty normal for TV both back then and now in my opinion, and the sedate pace of many of the episodes assist with that atmosphere I mentioned earlier. Year 2 is a lot of fun too, more just straightforward episodic adventures, but for me there's nothing much wrong with that. What I don't like about Year 2 is no Barry Morse as Professor Bergman. He was my favourite thing about Year 1. What were they thinking, just not realising what an asset they had in Barry and his character? Oh well. Well guys, we are now the Space 1999 <laughs> cast, so please feel free to continue writing in. We will actually stop watching Doctor Who at this point, and instead of Season 15, we will do Year 1 of Space 1999. And you still have someone who has not seen it. <laughs> no, we will be carrying on with season 15 But as I said, I'm watching Space 1999 And might be able to coax Julian Riley into it on their off nights We'll see Yeah, well, I also haven't seen Blake 7 So there's yeah, that Yeah, I would say that's higher priority <laughs> And that's it for the mail So as a reminder, we really do love getting your feedback, thoughts, comments and questions And as you've just heard we do try to read out as many of them as possible on the show, so please do get in touch. You can contact us through Facebook, Instagram, and at least for as long as it continues to exist, x at, <laughs> at watches4d, or you can email us at watches4d at gmail.com. Moving on to our season 14 retrospective, and for those who have heard one of our season retrospectives before, we will be doing this in the usual way that we do these. For those who haven't, we're going to be approaching this with a methodology that starts out with our end of season awards. Then we'll take a look back at our metrics and stats before we wrap it all up with some questions from our friends on our social media platforms. And we're going to jump straight into our awards and we will answer in reverse alphabetical order. So Riley goes first, followed by Julie and then myself. And so our first category is best and worst stories. And the nominations this season are The Mask of Mandragora. The Hand of Fear, The Deadly Assassin, The Face of Evil, The Robots of Death, and The Talons of Wang Chiang. Riley, over to you, my friend. We really have been blessed by a strong group of serials this season. I really do think so. 
I wanted to go with one that I felt was the most original, and I believe that to be the face of evil. I just really like the doctor having to deal with the results of his prior actions. I really like that idea. Now, for worst story, like I said, this is a very good group. So there isn't one that I believe it should be called worst. More like one that isn't as good as the rest. <laughs> it just sounds better that way. Agreed. And that one to me is Mask of Mandragora. The premise is decent, but I felt like I was experiencing a bit of a watered down version of the demons with all that cult stuff. And it kind of got repetitive with that. And the inner politics were getting a bit tiresome. So those are my picks. Okay, Julie, what have you got? Uh, I'm trying not to be the same. So I will say that I am, I think, tied for best story. And it is with The Face of Evil or The Robots of Death. I really like the creation of this world of these individuals on the spacecraft and how they interact with each other. We also had more women than just a companion which was very nice, and they were really well done, especially the lady who ended up helping out as captain. Toos, my girl. Ah, she's so good. And yeah, I just think that both of them had their merits, and I enjoyed both of them greatly. And then the worst story was, as Riley said, it's the Mask of Mandragora, but it's not even because it was bad. It just wasn't as bad. Well, Julie, it seems on Favourite Story, you are straddling the opinions of both myself and Riley. <laughs> because Riley went with the face of evil. You said the face of evil and the robots of death. So I'm just going to go for the robots of death, which I gave 10 out of 10. It's the only one in the season I did. I said it's probably in my top five favourite stories of all time. It's so strong. You mentioned the characters, Julie. They're all fantastic. The design work's amazing. The way we carry on with the introduction of Leela just works so well. Dudders is on great form. It's just such a wonderful little story. Is it the most imaginative? No, it's pretty heavily inspired by Agatha Christie and Isaac Asimov, but it works. And for me, that's my favorite story of the season. My worst or least favorite, I should say, is Mandragora. <laughs> wow. Anyone who listened to that episode heard me rant on at length about how I found the politics distinctly dull and boring. I stand by that. It's my least favourite. I wouldn't say it's actively bad, but to me it's kind of forgettable more than anything. All right, all right. All right, next up. And in the past few seasons, we have tried to nominate things for this as we've gone along, and we failed dismally <laughs> to do that this season. Yep. So we're just going to have to do it from memory. <laughs> we will be doing best and worst moment. And Riley, what have you got for us here? Well, I don't know about everyone else's memory. Mine was pretty damn good. I came up with a lot of things I wanted to give for a best moment. So I have to give out an honorable mention to start. I was going to say that it was the doctor telling Leela to stop killing people after she killed about <laughs> three people in as many minutes in the face of evil. But then I was thinking I was going to go with Taryn Capel's low-cost cosplay of the robots and the robots of death because it was so hilarious and goofy looking. But all joking aside, actually, I'm going to go with D84's sacrifice at the end of robots. Oh. I think that was the best. And because that to me is an example of something that the show does very, very well. Take something foreign or strange, 
get the audience to understand it and then empathize with it. And I just thought that was just amazingly well done. And so the show did such wonderful work with the Chinese in Talons, right? <laughs> Something foreign or strange and getting well, the audience Well, that's a very good segue for me. Thank you, Anthony. Uh, for worst moment, now obviously I could bring up many of the elements of Talons and how it handles race, but that is obvious and we've talked about it thoroughly in our episode, so I'm going to move on to something else. So I'm going to go with our old favorite, the appearance of the man, Dragory Helix, also known as a thousand flushes with white plastic beads. <laughs> that to me was the worst moment for a show that I felt like, especially this season, there were some really, really nice looking sets, good production value. I don't know what the hell they were doing with that. Maybe this was the money all got funneled into talons. That's why they had to use a toilet. So. Well, it got funneled into being on location for Mandragora, even if it was only whales. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I do want to say this is the last season before Star Wars. So Star Wars is released between seasons 14 and 15. Mm. And we will see if that has an impact on the yeah. special effects or not. Oh, you're saying that the toilet flushing would not have an effect on ILM as they went into make Star Wars? <laughs> No, I'm saying I don't think I they would have done the toilet flushing after Star Wars because everyone expects so much better. <laughs> All right, Julie, what have you got? Best and worst moments. All right. Well, funny enough, some of my best moments are from Talon's surprise, okay. I guess. I mean, I have three because, of course, you know me. I can't stick around with just one. I really enjoyed Leela doing the somersault out of the window. <laughs> Brilliant. I love... Jago and Professor Lightfoot getting in the dumbwaiter together. <laughs> oh, it was just, it was glorious. I love the two of them together. But one that I actually really liked was when Leela made the comment of, you ask me so that you can tell me. And the reason why I love it is that she's been around for three stories and she already understands the doctor. And that's what I love about Leela is that, as Anthony mentioned before, is that she is not dumb. She is smart. She just doesn't understand a lot of other things. And I really appreciated that moment. All right. And your worst moments, because I know it's not just one. <laughs> yes, I can't help it. I'm sorry. My worst moment. There's two. One is from the Mask of Mandragora, but it's more about not getting an entirely full weird episode, kind of like Mind Robber or one of those other ones. I was very disappointed. I wanted a full out just weird ass episode and we didn't get it. And then I also did not like The Matrix from The Deadly Assassin. Mm. It was not surreal enough for me to get behind. So what I'm hearing is you wanted the weird in this season and you didn't get enough of it. Yeah, it's weird. Usually that's Riley. I was yeah. about to say, am I rubbing off on you? <laughs> okay, well, that leads us to me. And I think my favorite moment... Riley mentioned D84 sacrifice. I think it's just generally the interaction between D84 and other characters. Mm -hmm. The whole, I heard a cry. That was me. <laughs> I heard a cry. That was me. <laughs> and the, please do not throw hands at me. <laughs> I think it's just so charming and really helps build D84 into a real character and not just a mindless or emotionless robot. I really, really like it. The worst moment, I'm actually going to narrow it down a bit further than how Julie did with The Matrix, and I'm specifically going to go with the elements that just seemed like they were trying to be weird but not really succeeding, so specifically the clown, the ninja, 
and <laughs> the spider that we didn't get. We all know it's clowns because Anthony doesn't like clowns. I don't. I don't. But you can't just string three random things together and then add in a prolonged cat and mouse chase between a hunter and the doctor and call it surreal. There are three things mm-hmm. that make zero sense followed by something with tension. No, thank you. There's a future episode that does the surrealness of the Matrix a lot better. And that's what I'm picking. Next up, we have best lead actor. And our criteria here is someone who is billed as a series regular, which this season gives us three options. We obviously have Tom Baker as the Doctor, Elizabeth Sladen as Sarah Jane Smith, whom we had for the first two stories of the season, and Louise Jameson as Leela, who we had for the last three. Riley, take us away. You know, I really need to keep track of who I give this award to, (laughs) especially when we had people on for so long. It felt like before, like it was a good way to do rotation. So I'm pretty sure I've given this to Elizabeth Sladen before, and I know I've given it to Baker before. And I'm not picking Louise Jameson because of that, but I just wanted to make sure I had Liz Sladen taken care of before she left the show. But I am definitely going with Louise Jameson for these reasons. She had to come in to replace a very beloved companion. She has to deal with Tom Baker being antagonistic to her behind the scenes. She has to deal with a lot of physicality in that role, and all while wearing very little clothing. (laughs) That is a lot to deal with, but she made it look effortless. It's kind of like the quote about Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. She had to do all the same things, but backwards and in heels. She had to do all this acting, all these things, but she had to do it like having to deal with all this other shit on top of it, and she did it great. She made it look effortless. I can't disagree because I, as I'm going to be next, also agree that it's Louise Jameson. And the reason being is that I think she just nails it out of the park from the second she gets on screen. She does a very good job of playing someone who is not familiar with certain technology and certain social norms, but is just not afraid to get shit done. And I love that. And I'm with you both. I really think it has to be Louise. You both said it. You listed all the reasons I would have. So there we go. It's Louise Jameson. <laughs> unanimous. Unanimous. <laughs> it doesn't happen often. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Our next categories are Best and Worst Supporting Actor. And this can be anyone who wasn't nominated for Best Lead Actor. So, Riley, this is pretty wide open. Who have mm-hmm. you got? Well, I'm going to be pretty controversial on this one. First off, Best Supporting Actor. I'm going to go with Pamela Salem as Twos in The Robots of Death. I found that the character's name is Lish Twos. I don't even remember they ever said her name. They didn't. Lish, they didn't. Interesting, though. I didn't know all of them had names, or at least maybe that was made up on TARDISFandom.com. <laughs> <laughs> She's probably back in some yeah. weird Big Finish or loosely related audio production where they name her. Well, out of all the crew members in The Robots of Death, she effectively made me believe that she was the only one there that was smart enough and capable capable enough out of all of them, <laughs> because so many of them were either assholes or idiots, <laughs> and she really stood out, and it was fantastic. Now, for worst supporting actor, this is a dangerous category, because oftentimes you want to put in a character there that you despise, but that isn't bad acting. That is good acting if... That was the intention of the character. You know what I mean? It's difficult because there were so many characters out there that kind of took my attention away from any necessarily bad acting. I just didn't like them as a entity or person. 
So I'm going to, and I'm, I think I'm allowed under the rules, under the shadow proclamation, I'm allowed to not <laughs> vote anyone this year. I'm going to vote no one as the worst supporting actor because honestly, like looking over the list and we had a lot of villains. Some of them I thought were poor villains, but I didn't necessarily think the acting was bad. So I'm going to go with no one. Controversial. I uh, know that's my controversy. Julie, are you going to be as controversial as Riley? But let's yeah. start with best. Best, I think it's one person who I think I attempted to nominate, and it might yes. be the only person, and it is Judith Paris as mm-hmm. Eldred. Yeah. I don't know if that's who you're thinking of, Riley. No, that's exactly who I, I, was, I was. When I was looking over everything, I was like, if I remember correctly, Julie should pick this person, and <laughs> she really liked that performance. Oh, man. She was wonderful. Only Lady Eldred, I will say that, hands down. Just the presence, the voice. Everything about her, the way that she was able to convince people of things. I just think she did a fabulous job. That doesn't mean whether or not I care about her actual opinions as a villain. The actress was so good. I will give an honorable mention to Trevor Baxter as Professor Lightfoot because he was also lovely and I love him too. (laughs) And then worst. Worst supporting actor. I felt the need to try to find one unlike Riley, but the best I could do... (laughs) was one of those random guys who got possessed by Eldrad in the Hand of Evil. Mm. <laughs> That's about as much as I could go. I was really hoping you were going to go for Stephen Thorne as Eldrad, I, and you would have Eldrad I, as both best and worst. I was very close to, but I think the point was him going over the top, and he did a good job of it. I just hated him. Also known <laughs> as Flashheart Eldrad. Yes. Oh, Flashheart. Well, I think for best supporting actor, I'm going to have to go with David Garfield as Neva in The Face of Evil. Oh, good answer. Good answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just the way he portrayed that character, initially so fanatical as an adherent of Zoannan and the more the story goes on and his worldview breaks down and he comes to realize the truth of what Zoanon is doing to his tribe and he just he effectively goes into breakdown and he portrays that so so well i think it's a really really nice acting job so yes that's my nomination there in terms of worst i am going to go for stephen thorne as male Eldrad, <laughs> because he was so needlessly over the top. He played it the exact same way as he did Omega. And honestly, I feel like he ruined the character after Judith mm-hmm. Paris had done such a good job with them. So, That's fair. Yep. yes, yeah, yep. Stephen Thorne as Eldrad. I'm going to do it if you won't, Julie. <laughs> next up, our next category is best and worst villain. And our options here are... Federico and or Hieronymus and or the Mandragora Helix from the Mask of Mandragora, Eldrad from the Hand of Fear, the Master and or Chancellor Goth from the Deadly Assassin, Zoannan and or Neva and or Andor and or Caleb (laughs) from the Face of Evil, (laughs) Taryn Capel from the Robots of Death, and then last but not least, Magnus Greel and or Lee Sen Chang and or Mr. Sin from the talons of Wang Chiang. Okay, Riley, who've you got? It really does feel like a good variety of villains here. It really does. And I thought about it and I kind of narrowed it down to 
Who would I least want to see walking home late at night on a dark street with no one else around? And that'd probably be Mr. Sin, because he is mm-hmm. fucking terrifying. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're not wrong. Right. I mean, all the other ones, like Magnus Greel or Taryn Capel or... Frederico, they're very overdramatic over the top. Mr. Sin doesn't say anything, really. He does kind of snort like a pig, though, which is incredibly (laughs) disturbing. So that is why I'm picking him. Now, not to be obvious, I hate doing that, but worst villain has to be the Mandragora Helix. Because if it wasn't a toilet flush, it was just some sort of vapor in the air. And that is just always one of the lamest types of villains or monsters you can have. So those are my picks. Julie, what have you got? I like how Riley's is who I wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley, and I'll just go with who I would because it's still Lady Eldred. (laughs) Hey. If you notice, Lady Eldred, not Mel Eldred. I will have them separate. I'm disappointed in you, Anthony, for not having them as separate. But again, we've already discussed how much I love Lady Eldred, and I thought that was a fabulous job. Once you got into realizing there was a male counterpart and then hearing all the backstory, it's like, oh, then it became lame. But when she first was introduced, oh, love her. Worst villain? I'm in between two. Sorry, everyone. I'm in between Goth and Federico. And the reason is Goth is just unremarkable and unmemorable. And Federico, because he was just that annoying politician guy. You know, Goth was a close second for me as well for worst. I found him incredibly annoying and pointless. I would have just rather had the master get his hands dirty than Goth being around. Agreed. Well, speaking of the master, (laughs) I'm actually going to go for the crispy master as best villain. Whoa. Partially because I kind of agree with Riley. Who would I not want to meet on a dark night? (laughs) And I think running into the crispy master in an alleyway would be fucking terrifying. (laughs) Also, it's kind of hard to run away from the master. A bit easier to run away from Mr. Sin. He's he doesn't really have he's a little guy. Or you just kick him. And then on top of that, we're back to the master's standard mode of operations where he has a plan. He could just go straight for the plan, but he decides to bring the doctor to Gallifrey just to screw with the doctor for a bit before he does his taking power thing. I kind of always like that about him. He's just out to give the doctor a hard time. (laughs) So, yeah, for that reason, Crispy Master. The worst villain, on the other hand... I'm kind of going with Federico as well. Hmm. He's a bit of a non-entity. I've said I find the politics of the story extremely boring. And yeah, he's the one character that I really don't think needed to be there for any of this. I think at least Goth has a purpose of being the one who gets close enough to the president to actually assassinate him. You could very easily rewrite The Mask of Mandragora to not include Federico. So we're done with him. Out. I think you don't like Federico because of his stance on peasants. (laughs) <laughs> he hates them. Yeah, fair, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Next up, we have two of my personal favorite categories, Best Director and the Richard Martin Award for Worst Director, also known as the Dickie. And our nominations this season are Rodney Bennett for The Mask of Mandragora, Lenny Maine for The Hand of Fear, David Maloney, who did both The Deadly Assassin and The Talons of Wang Chiang, Pennant Roberts for The Face of Evil, and Michael E. Bryant for The Robots of Death. Riley, who do you have for Best Director, and who are you giving your dickie to? <laughs> Every time. Every time. Um, I can't help it. It's, it's too good. Best Director, 
I'm tired of being kind of obvious here. You people can probably see a pattern here. Best director goes to Pennant Roberts for Face of Evil. I recall clearly while we discussed this how impressed I was with the direction. There was a couple shots in that that blew me away that I really just sat back and said, wait, what? Is this Doctor Who? I even remember in my notes writing down how I felt like it was such an impressive jump that I felt like there was a whole shift change into the show, which kind of did happen, I believe, because Talons and Robots of Death are amazing. Also, Pennant Roberts had a shootout scene that I actually enjoyed and was into. It's shocking. I cannot believe that. (laughs) So clearly, that is the best director of this season. Now, worst director, and maybe I just don't feel like being negative tonight. I just don't. It's going to be Rodney Bennett from Mask of Mandracra. Sorry, Rodney. But, you know, I don't think it's too much of his own fault here because the script wasn't that great. And in all fairness to him, he made a Welsh town look pretty well like Renaissance Italy. So fair play to him. Just, I believe the others did a better job. I think he may have just been burdened with the worst script out of the bunch. Yeah, that's fair. All right, Julie, let's hear yours. I hate this so much because I agree wholeheartedly in both. (laughs) So my best director is Pennant Roberts. And one of the things I remember is that one specific shot when they're climbing into the doctor's mouth and there's like the sunset Mm -hmm. view behind them. Oh, beautiful. Love it. And the worst, but I'm not saying it's the Dickie. I just am going with worst director because, again, Rodney Bennett, he wasn't bad. There were still some good shots in The Mask of Mandragora. He just wasn't as good as the others. That's it. There was nothing so horrendous that anyone did this season that made me cringe or made me point out the fact that, hey, this was a terrible shot. I don't have anything. That's fair. Well, I'm going to go against both of you for best director. And I'm going to give it to Mike Lee Bryant for The Robots of Death. That's fair. I think there are so many elements to that story that go in its favor. We talked about the amazing cast. We talked about the amazing design work, which is almost always done in collaboration with the director. But the way that he ramps up the tension throughout the story, I think, is such an integral part of what makes that story so good for me. And to give it to anyone other than him... I think would be a disservice to the work he did on that. And I think as a swan song on the show, you can't go wrong with that. That's a phenomenal outing for him. In terms of the Dickie, yeah, it's really not necessarily anyone who's done anything bad. It's really just the least good. I think giving it to the guy responsible for the Mandragora toilet swell (laughs) is appropriate. Again, that story is probably the worst thing Doctor Who can be in that it's quite forgettable. And maybe (laughs) he could have done a few things to ramp that up. I'm not sure. I do think he was probably lumbered with the worst script of the season. If only we did things for costuming, because it'd either be for the Mask of Mandragor or it would be for the Deadly Mm -hmm. Assassin because the Doctor's running around in a white flowing shirt. Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moving on from directors, we have our second of the Don Smith Award for Unnecessary Fan Wank. And I will be shocked if all three of us don't give the same answer. Oh, I'll just go ahead. I I know I'm up. I'll just go ahead and say it. It's all of the Deadly Assassin. (laughs) I said most, but yes, the Deadly Assassin. And one of the biggest reasons is I personally 
prefer the Time Lords being shrouded in mystery and not knowing exactly what they're about, rather than finding out that they're just like all the other dick politicians and that they are completely inept. (laughs) And that is my opinion. See, I don't dislike the Time Lord society in that you have all of these older guys who are so incredibly stiff and stuck up with Goth and Barusa and co. And then you've got Engin and Spandrel who, while they're still quite serious, they actually kind of work together and they're a little bit funny, but not necessarily in a way that's deliberate. I kind of like how there's that lighter element here, but certainly the additions to the lore and the amount of additions in one story, you have the 13 regeneration limit, you have the Eye of Harmony, you have the Matrix. You have the crispy master who's reached the end of his life. You have the rod and sash and key of Rassilon. In fact, you have the first mention of Rassilon. Just, I can't believe the amount of lore that is introduced in one story. It's unnecessary. It's gratuitous. (laughs) And it's certainly not the way I would do it. I would go for the slow build. Have some of these things seeded in the seasons beforehand and bring it to a crescendo here. Don't just dump it all in one story, Robert Holmes. (laughs) Rant over. So we're pretty much unanimous. And then lastly, Julie's favourite categories, best and worst use of music. Riley, what you got? Best use of music to me was actually the use of restraint by Dudley Sipson in Talons to not go way stereotypical with Chinese or Asian (laughs) music. We've already discussed the problems of that one. That probably would have made it a bit more difficult to get through if it was belabored with that. Now, worst use of music. And I think a lot of the music within The Deadly Assassin was good. But rewatching it, just listening back just to confirm my suspicions, I was listening to it earlier today and I feel like Dudders may have at some high tension moments let his cat lay on some of the keys of the organ a little too long. <laughs> Some of those bombastic parts, man, that organ was just like, it was a bit much. So that would be my pick for worst use of music. Okay. Julie, what are you going with? So this is getting harder and harder because Dutters is just really consistent now. He's really good in his prime. But my favorite was probably In the Hand of Fear when Dr. Carter is kind of chasing after the doctor and what I called like the traveling music in the hand of fear. I really enjoyed that. And I also actually liked something from the mask of Mandragora when the cult was doing their thing. There was a lot of low reeds, some solo trumpet and some church bells really, really well done. And I'm going to pull a Riley and say that for worse music, I can't actually pinpoint anything that is really bad. So I'm not going to vote. And Julie, I'm going to agree with you on that. I'm not going to vote for that either because I couldn't come up with anything. I did think there was this nice motif used for the robots in the Robots of Death Mm -hmm. that added an extra layer of creepiness to them (laughs) that really added to the whole thing. And I realized I've gone ham on the Robots of Death. I was up front. It's one of my favorite stories of all time. So I'm just going to be completely shameless and go with that. And that takes us to the end of our awards. So... Let's talk about some metrics. Don's least favorite part. Don's <laughs> least favorite part. So we had 13 points to the camp count this season, which is down on last season. Hmm. Last season got 14 and a half. So we're a little bit down. Six of those 13 came from the <laughs> talons of Wang Chiang. I, yeah, yeah. 
and a further three from the Robots of Death for Taryn Capel. So some good campness in this. That brings our total series camp count up to 155 and a half. Wow. So solid. Wow. Zero instances of I'll explain later. So we still have a total series count of six. We had two quarries this season. We did. <laughs> Hand of Fear and the Deadly Assassin. That brings our total quarry query count up to 24. We had the most jelly babies joint tied with season 12. Okay. Both seasons gave us five jelly babies. So we're now up to a total series count of 12. And then last but not least, as Philip Hinchcliffe went out with the talons of Wang Chiang, this wraps up our Philip Hinchcliffe women count, which for the Aww. uninitiated is the number of non-regular women with speaking parts in the show during the Philip Hinchcliffe era. And Ooh. this season gave us six women with speaking parts, bringing us up to a total for the series of 13 oh. across 22 stories. I honestly thought I'd be below 10. I really thought it was going to be below 10. So if you kind of average that out, I believe that gives us about three-fifths of a speaking woman per story. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, not exactly the proudest. And of that 13, one of them is the obsessed with dead bodies being pulled out of the river crone yes. and talons. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and then one only made it, what, into two episodes of The Robots of Death? Yes, yes. Zilda was only in two, I think. So yeah, definitely women severely underrepresented in this era of Doctor Who. And I will ask the question, where are the women, Phil? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to write for them. Well, you're an idiot. Yeah, good job, Robert <laughs> Holmes. All right, let's talk about our scores. Julie, do you recall your highest rated? No. You gave the Robots of Death 10 out of 10. Oh, I did, Ooh. didn't I? Yeah, Yeah, because I actually couldn't find fault with it, yeah. Heading down from there, Face of Evil, 9. Yeah. Talons, 8. Hand of Fear, 7. Mandragora, 6.5. And, and The Deadly Assassin, also 6.5. So tied bottom for those two. Riley, your highest was the Robots of Death, 9.5. Mm. Followed by The Face of Evil and Talons, tied on a 9. The Deadly Assassin on six and a half, and then tied for last, Mandragora and the Hand of Fear. Hmm. Mine, I have none that are tied, so my highest was, surprise, surprise, the Robots of Death, 10 out of 10. Face of Evil, nine. Deadly Assassin, eight. Talon, seven and a half. Hand of Fear, seven. And Mandragora, five and a half. When you average these out, our highest scoring, and this is our now our number one scoring story of all time. Oh my God. Okay. Was The Robots of Death mm -hmm. with 9.83. Face of Evil, 9. And then Talons gets a 8.17. Deadly Assassin, 7. Hand of Fear, 6.67. And Mandragora, 6. I went ahead and looked at our top 10 of all ooh, time. Ooh. Uh oh. And do you want to know where we stand? Yes, love to. Well, two stories from this season make it in here. In first place, The Robots of Death, 9.83. In second place, The Brain of Morbius, 9.75. The Mind Robber comes in third, <laughs> 9.25. Tied for fourth, we have three stories that all have an average of 9.13, and that's The Enemy of the World, The Demons, oh. and Terror of the Zygons. In at seventh, we have The Face of Evil. An eighth Genesis of the Daleks <laughs> uh. with 8.88. 8. 
And then tied in at ninth, we have two stories scoring 8.75, and that's The War Games and The Ark in Space. So we have representation in our top 10 from the second, third, and fourth Doctors. Mm, I think we need to look back at those first Doctor episodes again. He needs to be on there somewhere, I feel like. It just doesn't feel right. Well, you only have to go into joint 12th to get the Dalek invasion of Earth. Okay. So kind of bubbling under at eight and a half. Now, our season average for this was 7.78. I'm not going to go through all of them because that's tedious and Don would have already killed me in my sleep for (laughs) spending too much time on our stats. But at 7.78, this does actually equate to our highest scored season so far. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, the only thing to think about is our third Doctor stories tended to be very stable in not having a lot of bad episodes, but I guess the Mask of Mandragora was not that bad. Right, right. right. The next one to this, scoring 0.1 behind at 7.68 was season 9. So, Julie, we're talking part, we were talking consistency. That season did Mm -hmm. very well as well. Yep. And just for context, our worst scoring season was season 6 at 6.17 and I realized to an extent that's because we had the Dominators, the Crotons and the Space Pirates in the same season. Ooh, ouch. Oh, I didn't realize it was all of those. Yeah, so even though it's got Jamie and Zoe and the Second Doctor, those definitely dragged that season down quite significantly. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, that rounds out our metrics so I can hear the cheer of relief from much of our (laughs) audience. (laughs) So we're going to take some questions from social media. And for anyone who's listening in the first time, we do like to put out a request on Facebook and Instagram for questions as we're coming into our season retrospective. So keep an eye out when we get round to season 15, we will put out a similar ask. Feel free to drop us a question when that happens. But this time around, I identified really five different categories. The first one relates to The Doctor, where we have Keith Burton asking... Tom Baker worked under three different production teams. Each of those teams allow him to present three different interpretations of the fourth Doctor, even his costume changes. Can the team see why, after his first three seasons and at the end of that first production team, Tom Baker is still considered the absolute benchmark against which all other Doctors are judged? Well, I don't have to twist my arm. I totally get it. I got it like three serials in. He's amazing. I... I do feel that as I am progressing through Classic Who, that I'm starting to think that there needs to be kind of an ADBC separation between New Who and Classic Who when we start talking about comparing the two eras, because I feel like they are becoming so fundamentally different that it's kind of comparing apples to oranges to compare Tom Baker to whoever you want to say would be the best New Who doctor. I would actually take it a step further, Riley, and rather than subdividing anything based on Doctor, I think it always needs to be looked at through the lens of production team. So whomever the producer is, or the showrunner in the case of Modern Who, you can look at Tom Baker, and Keith alluded to this, in that you have the Hinchcliffe era, then you have the Williams era, and then you have his one season with John Nathan Turner, and every one of them is a very different interpretation of the show. And you see that with the first Doctor between Verity Lambert, John Wiles, and I think Innes Lloyd, three very different ideas of what the show should be. The third Doctor was lucky in that that was entirely almost Barry Letts and Terence Dix. But you keep seeing this. You look at Modern Who, we think about the RTD era, we think about the Moffat era, and we think about the Chibnall era. 
We try not to, though. <laughs> yeah, we try not to. But even though you've had five or six doctors in that time, depending on how many you count Tennant as, you think about them in terms of the showrunner, not necessarily the <laughs> yeah. doctor. Right. That's fair. Yeah. And I, again, he's still not my favorite. Sorry, everyone. Troughton's still my favorite. But I understand why he's often and usually is the benchmark that people will go to. And I think part of that is when you get to the earlier doctors, they're a more old fashioned type of take on television. It's not even just because they're in black and white. It's the grandfather. It's a very different feel. And yeah, you get this Bond version. But then with Baker, it's its own thing. It's not trying to be anything else. It's new. It's refreshing. It's really more modern take than we had in the previous three Doctors. And that's why I think that's the one that moved forward. Yeah, and I would agree. I think Tom Baker brings an eccentricity to the role that is really quite alien. Riley talks about it as being Bugs Bunny, and you wouldn't see many, if any, humans behaving like that. And mm -hmm. so you kind of see him as this kind of other, but a very, very charming other that you kind of relate to even though you can't, if you know what I mean. Like, you're never going to behave like that, but you can't help but admire to it and aspire to it, almost. It's really something quite wonderful and brings a real electricity to the character. So yes, I absolutely see it. I think if we're going to look at it and do that divide between classic and new, I think classic Tom Baker becomes that benchmark and for better or for worse in New Who, simply because he's been so mm. popular, it's David Tennant. All yeah. of them have been compared to him. Yeah. Now, you pit the two up against each other. I think I'm going to take Tom Baker over David Tennant. But that's a question for much later. Our next category is on companions. And we'll start with the Whovian gal who says, how, if at all, do you think the show changed with the switch from Sarah to Leela? Mm. So I have two parts to mine. I'll try to be very quick. One... We go from reporter who just asks a lot of questions and does some things to an actual fighter. So that changes the dynamics with the doctor because the doctor used to have to be a little bit more of the muscle, so to speak, just because we were of lack thereof of any other. And now we have Leela. But really what I think is, is that she's from a totally alien world. And so what's funny is that I think she does a better job adjusting to other worlds but not adjusting to Earth, which is a big juxtaposition to Sarah. And actually, Julie, I think you're touching on one of the other questions. So I'm going <laughs> to ask this and pose this one where Kieran James Evans asked, end of season thoughts on Leela, question mark, compared to Sarah Jane. What do you think having the first non-contemporary companion since the 60s brings to the show? Yeah, funny that I had a C above written in my notes because, <laughs> <laughs> yes, those two questions were very similar, in my opinion. I enjoy the fact that we have an non-contemporary companion because you need a break from that whole well-worn bit about this isn't how things are done on modern day Earth, Doctor. You know, it's good to not have that all the time, that kind of like, this is so foreign and so strange from the perception of a person from Earth. And it's better to have it from maybe someone who doesn't share the same experiences as the audience. And I think we already discussed this earlier regarding the difference between Sarah and Leela. The writers now are going to feel a little bit more hemmed in as they won't be able to do as much damseling as they used to, or at least I hope they realize they can't. <laughs> they might still try, damn it. Yeah, and I like it. I think it allows them to tell a very different type of story with that companion. Mm -hmm. Everything we have with 
Leela's perception of body language in The Robots of Death, you probably wouldn't get that in the same way with Sarah. Likewise, Sarah would react to being in Victorian London very, very differently to Leela. So I definitely think there's a pivot. I think it's a lot more interesting. And critics of the style will claim it takes away the audience identification figure. I'm not sure I care. Yeah, that one. I don't care. Everyone get over it. (laughs) And then last but not least, Kat, also known as Citrine Dragonfly, over on Instagram, asks, which of the Doctor's companions was better served by her stories this season? Well, I mean, there was only one <laughs> this season for Sarah Jane, really. Two. Two. I mean, yeah, I, that's right. I want to overlook Mandragora. It is forgettable. It's got to be Leela, in my opinion. I think it's kind of, it's so clearly that. It's 100% Leela. Sarah Jane was starting to get relegated to damsel in distress again. And oh, hey, look, she got mind controlled again. Now, her acting when she was mind controlled was phenomenal. But for her character, we just redid the whole thing that she's done several times. I'm with you. I think Leela certainly gets the more interesting stories, if nothing else. I think you look at she gets the face of evil, she gets the robots of death, and she gets talons. And talons, for all its faults, is still actually very well scripted. She's given a lot of good things to do. She's actually served quite well by it. And yeah, I mean, I think definitely Leela, she's better served, which is a shame because Sarah Jane is such a beloved companion and she's not really treated with the respect that maybe she should have been for her departure. Anyway, we next have a series of questions on our production team duo of Hinchcliffe and Holmes. And we'll start with Nick Rutherford, who asks, what's your favourite and least favourite Hinchcliffe season? So we've got seasons 12, 13 and 14. So 12 is from the Ark in Space through to Revenge of the Cybermen. 13 being the run that started with Terror of the Zygons and finishing with the Seeds of Doom. And 14, obviously, being Mandragora through Talons. I think, to me, my favorite is the one we just did, 14. And my least favorite is 12. It makes a lot of sense. We're getting into the job, probably figuring out what they want to do, what they felt worked and what didn't work. And as they're on their way out, they're at their peak. Just that simple. I think I agree with 12. 12 was definitely my least favorite. Again, what you alluded to, they were figuring things out. But... I think I'm actually more likely to rewatch more of 13 than 14, and maybe not even that. I think it had higher highs than 14. Terror of the Zygons. I could probably watch that like once a month, and I would be very, very happy. I loved Terror of the Zygons. And Seeds of Doom, brilliant. And yes, maybe I've rated some things higher in season 14, but that is also because I think that If you're actually looking at it from a certain perspective, it is a better story, but that doesn't mean I enjoy it more. So I like 13 better. I think it's very hard to decide between seasons 13 and 14. I think 14 really ramps up as it goes. So it starts with the weakest and then really that run of stories that starts with the face of evil and runs through talents, that second half of the season is just so incredibly strong. And again, I recognize Talons has some pretty severe faults, but there are also a lot of things it does really, really well. And I mean, you've heard me say it, Robots is top five of all time for me. So it's pretty obvious season 12 for me is the weakest. I think they were somewhat lumbered with some kind of half-baked plans from the previous production team. I'm not sure Hinchcliffe and Holmes would have chosen to go for three of their four first stories with returning villains, for example. 
I certainly don't think that they would have allowed Revenge of the Cybermen to go through had they had a full season under their belts. So yeah, definitely the weakest there. I'm going to go with season 14. When I actually look at my season averages for 13 and 14, they are neck and neck for me. Both of them had an average of 7.83. And I really think it is because of how highly I rate robots. That's the deciding factor for me. Just such a strong story. Next up, we're going to take the next two together because they're similar. Kieran James Evans says and asks, The Hinchcliffe era is oft mentioned for its violence and horror. Is that the case for season 14 when compared to seasons 12 and 13? And then Gary Ireland also asks, Do you think season 14 is too dark and violent or does it hit the perfect balance for Doctor Who? Well, I really don't see a difference in the level of violence and horror between 14, 13, and 12. I don't. I definitely see a difference between those seasons and the ones that have come before it. I'm totally fine with it. I feel like this is a good level of horror for the show. I Maybe others will disagree. I am a fan of horror, so maybe I am biased. But I think we're hitting on a good level here, and I hope that it continues. I find it interesting that it talks about violence, and yet the Pertwee era just had unit having shootouts with people. So I find that interesting because violence has been a part of the show for a while. Now, it's a different type of violence, and you can maybe start going into, well, it's more personal, it's more psychological, it's more, you know, again, it's a horror aspect of it. And okay, an argument could be made there, but I just find the violence piece a bit interesting. But as for the horror part, I enjoy this level. I think that 12 had the least amount. And so it did build up from 12 through 13 and 14. But 13 had just about as much horror as 14 did as well. But I don't think it's too much. I don't think it's gratuitous. And I'm rather enjoying it. I think it's interesting. And Julie, you hit on a good point. In the very first Doctor Who story... (laughs) The Doctor hit someone in the head with a rock? Yeah, the Doctor (laughs) is about to brain someone with a rock. So it's always been there to some extent. Obviously, I think this is probably a lot more personal Mm -hmm. violence. It's a lot closer. I don't think we've ever seen someone being held underwater as a cliffhanger before. Something Mm -hmm. quite that horrific. I do think the Hinchcliffe era does ramp it up in a way that hasn't really been seen before. Those unit shootouts, I think everyone must be terrible shots because (laughs) it feels like so few actually die in those or sustain serious injury. (laughs) Yeah, you have some red shirts, I guess, but it certainly doesn't feel quite as close as it does in the Hinchcliffe era. As to whether season 14 is any darker... I'm not sure. I think the Matrix scenes in The Deadly Assassin might have been a bit gratuitous, but I don't think it's anything that we haven't seen in a story like The Seeds of Doom. Mm -hmm. There was quite a lot of violence in that. I'm not going to say the violence is a perfect balance for Doctor Who. I do think it probably swings a little too far in this season, and I know I'm going to talk about that in a future season as well. Julie, you raised a good point on the horror. I think the horror aspects of the Hinchcliffe era have been really enjoyable. You look at the way stories like The Brain of Morbius Mm. play on those horror tropes. You look at The Hand of Fear to some extent, a moving disembodied hand. Even before I saw that story, I had nightmares about disembodied hands as a kid. (laughs) I think this really plays on some very base fears. And Stephen Moffat, I remember him in an interview saying that he thinks of Doctor Who as horror for kids. 
And I think the Hinchcliffe era actually does that really, really well and may have even been the era to introduce that concept. So I kind of like that side. Moving on, still under the Hinchcliffe and Holmes section, R.L. Gray states and then ultimately asks, This season marks the end of the Hinchcliffe era, which many regard, particularly with his collaboration with Robert Holmes, as the best the series ever produced so much so that he even got a special series of audios from Big Finish. Could you share your own overall thoughts about Hinchcliffe's work, how he differed from producers before and since, and the mark he left on the show? And I'm going to take my privilege here to jump (laughs) right in with the question, once again, where are the women, Phil? (laughs) I think the fact that this question has come right after what we discussed is perfect because it kind of provides my answer already. And that is, it's the horror element. That's to me what it is. I looked over when I looked at the previous question, when I was reading these questions earlier today, and I was looking over the list. I was like, what's the difference here? This Hinchcliffe era, what what am I noticing? And it's the horror element. It is so clearly that. That's what I think is the big mark that he has left. I would agree. I think there's an element of the visual aesthetic as well. This is known as Doctor Who's gothic era. And I think that really comes from that Hinchcliffe and Holmes duo. And particularly the the Art Deco vibes Mm. from the Robots of Death. Again, genius. So I think the general aesthetic, you can kind of feed into that as well. Yeah, I think there's aesthetic, there's stories. Just having Tom around is another thing that just boosts their run. And it's one of those things where, again, kind of with the third Doctor, there's more lows, I think, than in the third Doctor run. But there's just really, really good, high quality stuff in here. Some of the writers that they have gotten understood the assignment and got it done. Obviously, I know that Holmes would go in and clean things up now and then, but I think that some of their collaboration with some people outside of the two of them also helped the show. I would agree with that. And then last but not least under this header, Kieran James Evans once again asks, and was Hinchcliffe right to blow the budget on Talons? (laughs) I love this question because when you look at all of the stories, none of them look bad. It's not that they stole it from someone else, one of these other stories, because nothing looked so terrible that it's like, well, obviously they spent no money on this. Some of them where they'd spent very little on are some of the ones that look the best. So honestly, I'm like, good for you. You decided, you know what? I got some extra cash lying around. I'm going to just blow this budget up. Do it on Talons. It was beautiful. Good for him. (laughs) I do wonder if Talons hadn't looked so good. Would its flaws have become a lot more apparent and be a bit more overriding? I feel like we can note the problematic issue with parts of Talons, but we also can recognize it looks amazing. It does. It Mm -hmm. really does. The production value is so high, with the exception of the giant rat, who (laughs) I think is secretly a good boy and just needs some head scritches, and then he wouldn't be so angry all the time. But, you know, what do I know about rodents of unusual size? Like, get him out of the sewer. Let him go play somewhere else. He just doesn't like the sewer, guys. Give him a nice home. Feed him well. Give him head scratches. He'll be a happy boy. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> what was the question again? <laughs> oh, yes, the budget. <laughs> yeah, I agree, Julie. I think the Face of Evil and the Robots of Death, which are the studio-bound ones, they both look great. They don't lose anything from being studio-bound and having a slightly lesser budget. I do wonder whether next season will suffer Mm. at all since 
Hinchcliffe basically said, I'm out of here, spend what you want. So I guess that will be a question in season 15 for us to revisit, maybe. Riley, you got anything? Oh, no, no. I think you've said it all there. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the future. And the Whovian gal asks us, what do you hope that Graham Williams will introduce or change? And what elements of the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era do you hope that he will keep? And again, I'm going to go first here. Producer's privilege. <laughs> Jeez. Let's have more women with speaking parts, please. <laughs> I want to put a little asterisk on that. So while the HH era, as we'll call it, they didn't have a lot of women, a lot of times when they had them, they were excellent. Mm -hmm. So how about William's era? Let's just have more of those excellent women. Let's have more bloodthirsty crones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like the nurse in the Terrors of the Zygon or Aldred or... Or Toos, yes, yes, I know, but also more bloodthirsty crones. <laughs> I mean, I need more women who are country yokels. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. I think one thing that struck me about this season, and I really do like this season a lot, but I would like to see a change for Williams to make is, can we make sure that we have stories that are suited to the doctor that is currently the doctor? Because hmm. I believe that the deadly assassin and the mask of Mandragora were more meant for the third doctor than the fourth doctor. And I would just like to have more consistency with that going forward. That's what I would like Williams to do. I would go a step further and say Mandragora, I think, feels like a first doctor story to me. I could easily see Hartnell running around that story. It's fair. But I'm with you. I think that's valid. I also think we stepped some into the horror, but we took a step back from some of the weird. And I can't believe I'm saying it because I'm not the person who wants to go weird. But let's go weird again. Wow. I know. I think you might be about to get your wish. <laughs> well, I'm just starting to expect now that Doctor Who is about alien races, so it should be weird. I think you're going to get your wish. Okay. Yeah, I think overall, let's keep up some of that horror. Mm -hmm. I think it works really, really well in Doctor Who. I mentioned more women with speaking parts. And yes, Julie, I agree. They should be good speaking parts and not just, much as I may joke about it, not just <laughs> bloodthirsty crones. And I also want the era to kind of keep Leela the way she is. Yes. Let's not have her get lost in that transition and forget who she is and what she's all about. But yeah, I think that's my wish list. And then one last question just for fun. And this comes from Paul Arthur, who's also known as Doctor Who 60s, 70s, 80s on Instagram. Check out his page. It's very good. He asks, in this season, the TARDIS gets a secondary console room. If you were to design a tertiary console room, what would the theme be? <laughs> well, I know what I would pick. Tiki theme. <laughs> Ooh. I'm not surprised. So I started going down a rabbit hole and I actually agree with the 15th doctor of asking the question of why there are never any chairs. So let's talk about chairs. <laughs> 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 but no, really what I wanted to talk about is I started going down this route of, and plus it doesn't help that it's been rainy and cold and everything. So I started thinking about a nice cozy place that has some armchairs, maybe a fireplace. And then I was like, oh, but I liked the woodwork and the stained glass that we got in the secondary console room. And then I was like, you know what? Let's just pick a Hogwarts common room. It doesn't matter which one. And let's just go with that. I think you're going to like the Eighth Doctor's TARDIS, Julie. <laughs> well, okay. Wasn't expecting that. 
Anthony, I'm guessing since you didn't comment to mine, there is no Tiki-themed room coming. I mean, who knows what the 16th Doctor's TARDIS <laughs> will look like. RTD, are you listening? I think, for me, this is tough because I really, really love the kind of direction Julie just suggested and what we actually end up with for the 8th Doctor. I also really love what we now have with mm. Tenant 2 and Shooty's TARDIS in... It's like a big, beautiful, expansive redesign of the original TARDIS. And it's beautiful and it's gorgeous. And that's kind of what I've always wanted to see. And I feel like I've been spoiled for choice. And I've almost been trying to think, okay, what can we do that wouldn't make it just look like a standard starship bridge that you might see in Star Trek? And the only thing I can think of is maybe to go for something really claustrophobic and small. But I'm not sure I'd want to see that either. So... I think I'm just with Julie. Something a bit more fantastical that's kind of warm and cosy. I like that. And for God's sake, it needs a central column. (laughs) That has been the only thing I disliked about this console room. We need a central column on the TARDIS console. Otherwise, I'm writing letters. (laughs) Well, that wraps up our questions from our social media. That brings us to the end of this season retrospective. I feel like we've gone on a little longer than usual. But as always, thank you so very much for listening. Next time, we will be back as we dive into season 15 with the horror of Fang Rock. But in the meantime, of course, have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Riley Shrek, Julie Philippak, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Three Fifths of a Speaking Woman, was recorded on Monday, the 11th of December, 2023. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and X at at Watchers4D, and you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, claiming that you don't know how to write for women is not a good excuse for not including women in your show.